Hey, welcome back to uh, Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. It's a special two-part episode. This is part two of We Just Couldn't Get Enough of... What were we calling them? What You, you win some, you lose some? You win some, you lose some. I don't part know. Part two. <laughs> I... This is... Oh, sorry. I'm joined. I guess I'm joined by uh, Vedahi Metha. Hi. You guess. Okay, hello, back. And, jo- and Joe Faba. She's here, too. <laughs> That's okay. I want to get to it, too. I'm rubbing my hands together in anticipation of some of these cases. Yeah, this week is non-food. This, uh, maybe the theme this week might have to do with children. Chillins. <laughs> but we're... Chillins and villains. But we're going to start off... But this And this one, technically, that I'm going to start off talking about has to do with a child, but uh, maybe just a child at heart <laughs> still. Oh, um, gross. Okay. <laughs> This is uh, this is one that I wrote about a couple years ago. Probably had more fun writing about this case than anything else I've ever had. I mean, every day at Find Law is a joy. <laughs> and um, to be clear, um, but I might have peaked on uh, December 28th, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because a 42-year-old man in Michigan named David Working won a lawsuit in federal court without even having to go to trial against his parents for throwing away his porno collection. I don't think this guy was working very much. <laughs> I mean, he no, he wasn't. He was not. The backstory is at first I thought you were making some kind of like sex euphemism and then I realized you weren't. It was a very <laughs> in, innocent pun. It was yeah, a very it innocent really pun. Really was, it really was, actually. It was my fault. <laughs> Aren't um, you proud of me? You should find out of the gutter, Andy. It was my fault. So the backstory is that uh, David Working got divorced and he had been estranged from his parents, but his ex-wife emailed his parents and was like, here's what's happening I'm getting rid of this guy, your son. I'm kicking him out of my house, so you may you may want to take him in because I don't think he has anywhere else to go. <laughs> oh, okay. So he wasn't working. Yeah. Makes sense. Yes. I this, was just speculating. Well, he's a, he, he's an artist. <laughs> okay. Apparently, he he's an artist, uh-huh. and um, which is his wife, one of the things why he got divorced was his wife was basically like, I am working, and you claim to be an artist and are bringing home no money. So his parents laid down some ground rules to their son, who was then in his 30s, because they had they, you know, had a not good relationship. Mm. And uh, apparently there were several fights, several conditions to him being to him moving in to a 30 year old man. One of those was which, like, if you aren't making any money in several months, like if you're still here in several months, you're going to have to pay us rent. You're going to have to pay us rent. Uh, He thought that the condition, the living conditions in the basement were subpar because he didn't have enough natural light to do his artwork. Blah, 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 blah. David working was also a massive pornography enthusiast. Um, (laughs) As we covered in a recent episode, perfectly legal. Not that there's anything wrong with that, to be clear. (laughs) Um, But, Apparently, his parents had made a condition that he was to have no pornography in the house. The government can't tell you that, but if you're living with your parents, they can tell you that. You know, my house, <laughs> my house, my rules. Yeah. Even if you're an adult, you know, this is why it's usually good to... Not live with your parents? Not live with your parents, no, <laughs> yeah. matter, no matter what. I know people fall on hard times, live with a friend instead. It's just, it's never going to work living with your parents. 
as an adult. It's it's just it's baked um, into my culture, and I still agree. <laughs> and so they tell him this. They're under the impression that that he doesn't move in any of his porn with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, they get into another big argument about something immaterial to porn, and he leaves the house. And the parents say, like, you know, we don't want you. You're going to need to move out. Mm-hmm. We don't want you to move back in. And so they move all of his stuff up to the garage and they're like, you need to come get it. He comes to get it and he discovers that his most prized collection, which is, I have the numbers here. 1,605 individual titles of DVDs and VHSs. And 50 sex toys. And he's like, where is my collection? My one, where is my, my one valuable asset here? And to which his parents tell him that he threw that 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 they threw it away for his own good. This is all do- David working. Then um, he tries to get the police to arrest his parents. He tries Aww. to press charges. Local police and prosecutors decline, despite him like repeatedly haranguing them with emails and calls asking him to do this. So, with no other alternative, he sues them in federal court in Michigan. Federal court. Do you know why? Yeah, in, I I don't know why. He sued them in U.S. District Court, though. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I cannot figure this out. To David's credit, he has all of these email conversations between him and his parents. And so there's an email from his dad saying, frankly, David, I did you a big favor getting rid of all this stuff, which is, you know, what all parents say to their children when they throw out what they think is illicit uh, material. <laughs> um, um, they were concerned that some of the lusty loot was child pornography, was what their their claim was. They said that they held back like 50 of the of the DVDs and kept them in a safe deposit box, basically to use as leverage against their oh, son. Oh, wow. And so when this lawsuit was filed, they, t- they actually turned all of these titles over to local police. Local police reviewed reviewed all of them they said found no evidence of child pornography and so they're like well no it's it's all legal it's all legal stuff and then another another email from david's dad said i don't think you've been listening to me so let me make this very clear i do not possess your pornography it is gone ditto for your sex toys and smutty magazines which federal judge which veda he why was this filed in federal court? okay so i was also very confused by this because i would think like the damage. So there's numbers of ways to get, oh my God, not to get all law school on you, but real quick, it's, you don't get into federal court unless you have a claim based on federal law or an easy alternative is usually based on diversity of citizenship. So if someone in one state sues someone in another state and they're alleging damages of more than 75 grand, then you can get on, get into federal court based on diversity kind of loophole. And here, yes. okay. here, I guess he had moved out of state apparently. Yep. Um, so yep. When he was filing suit, and even though his collection was worth maybe twenty five grand, he alleged that for purposes of trouble damages, yeah, yep. he was alleging more than seventy five grand based of damages. Yes. Okay. So this the case why the judge then uh, awarded David a very quick win in on in summary judgment was that based on Michigan long-standing Michigan case law going back to the 18 to the 1870s that his parents had illegally quote converted David's booty to their own use 
in destroying it, in taking possession of it and destroying it. U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Michigan, Paul Maloney, also wrote that a longstanding case law holds also that conversion to one's own use could also include destruction, even due to the converter's belief in the destroyed item's deleterious effects. <laughs> so it's it's interesting that a lot of folks will bring suit in federal ca- in federal court, like you know if their attorneys are really tactful. And in this case, for example, his parents lived in Michigan, but he had since moved to Indiana. So if the attorney determines that Indiana law uh, is more favorable to use um, to, to win, then it would make sense to try to bring it in federal court and use Indiana law. But here they used Michigan law, so that doesn't yep. seem like to, it was the motivation. Also, the damages that were awarded were way short of 75000 in the end, right? But it doesn't matter. Yes. It doesn't matter what the ultimate damages awarded are. It's amount, what matters is the amount in controversy. Yeah. So, so, he had, so David had originally sued for about 90000 because he said it's under that Michigan law he's entitled to triple, to triple damages. Um, the judge didn't see it that way, but ultimately his parents' attorney then, when, when they were ordered to assess the value of and submit a claim for what they owe and whatever, they went to an erotic museum in Las Vegas to have the, the, the items assessed because David had a meticulous list of all the titles that he owned and it was it was it was estimated to be worth just over $30,000 mm, actually wow. $30,441 and in August of last year that is what that is what was awarded his his contention on the worth of some of these movie titles was that they are out of print was that they're out of out of print sure yeah sure the, the movies were so yeah. okay you know David working my hero <laughs> Uh, there is, to me, if you ask me, there is nothing better. There is no better poster for the for the supremacy of the U.S. legal system to any other country in the world <laughs> than a grown man suing his parents for throwing out his porno and winning. That is just. I, I agree. Sometimes you gotta love our j- justice system, right? I live for cases like this. They make me so happy. You win some, <laughs> and then you lose some. Andy, is your is your other one also? Oh, also, yeah. is it a loss? Well, a kid lost big, which to me okay, is also funny. Okay. <laughs> so, so we got, the plaintiff won again. However, the losing defendant was uh, five years old and nine months. So that is okay. equally hilarious. <laughs> so this one is, okay, this is the chair one, right? Like the lawn chair one. Yeah, Garrett V. Daly, you two might know more about this because apparently this 1955 case is frequently used in law school. Yep, I remember this case. And it back in torts, we learn a lot about like what little kids can and can't get away with in just pulling the I'm a little, I'm a little you know, sorry, there's some cuss words just, that I can't. Just little, can't Ke- just little, Maca- just little uh, Kevin McAllister making making mischief. Yeah, yeah, little Macaulay Culkin. You can't get away with everything just because you pull the "I'm adorable" card. <laughs> so it, what happens in this case, Andy? Yeah, it was so. Apparently, some people were gathering in a backyard. It was a cookout or something, and Ruth Ruth Garrett. An, an older woman got up out of her chair, went inside the house, and what happened then kind of is where accounts differ. 
five-year-old and nine-month uh, little Brian Daly needed a seat. And so he took the seat. In his, in his you know, account of facts was that he took the seat. Ruth Garrett then comes back outside, goes to where she was sitting before, and goes to sit down. Little Brian Daly realizes what is happening and tries to put, shove the chair back under Ruth to no avail. Uh, according to other people's accounts, uh, this was a a classic Dennis the Menace prank that I have had pulled on me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, that that you someone's going to sit down and somebody else just yanks the chair out yep. from behind really fast and you fall on your butt. Yeah, but that someone's usually not five, right, Andy? That someone usually should know better. A five year old? Oh, I don't know. That's pretty. That's really? pretty little. That, that's exactly the kind of hijinks that a six-year-old. Well, yeah, yes. that's that's. It's like putting a. It's like exactly like putting a whoopee cushion on yeah. under sure. the teacher's chair. And and here's uh, why, like intentional, like willful and intent yes. matters because there's there we got to parse out. Oh well, I, we also should note very quickly though that in this fall, Ruth Garrett broke her hip. Continue. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. So his aunt or whoever this this old lady in her family broke her hip. So what we got to parse out is the different things that he should or shouldn't have known. It, I don't think anyone is arguing that he wouldn't have known that she would fall mm-hmm. if he did this, right? Five-year-olds can know that. But then the question becomes, would he have also known that he would break her hip and suffer such a severe injury? Mm-hmm. So right. does it matter? Does intentionally, does intentionality or knowledge of the latter even matter at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the trial judge found in favor of Brian Daly saying that there was no intent to harm the in, intent to harm. Um, you know, it's the clad like, I didn't mean it, yeah. which is what we all yelled through tears <laughs> at that age. And it's like, I did mean for you to fall. I just didn't mean for you to get hurt so bad. R- right, right? Exa- exactly. Um, kids everywhere to this day use that excuse. Well, and he, right. to be fair, um, he was they... probably doing it with his friends. Like, that was probably just a joke that, you know. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, and, you know, kids can bounce up from that, no problem at all. Yeah. Ruth Garrett did appeal to the Washington Supreme Court saying that she had sustained about $11,000 in, in medical damages. I'm guessing she asked his parents to pay for it first, and they were the ones that were really being difficult here. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Um, because she sued, though. She sued. She did not sue his parents, to be mm-hmm. clear. She sued. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. sued a five-year-old kid. I'll show you, you little piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> you better lawyer up, son. <laughs> and so the issue before the Washington Supreme Court was whether a lack of intent to harm can preclude battery and the court held that battery could only be found if it is shown that the boy knew with quote substantial certainty that after the chair was moved this sounds like a this sounds like a quite the test for a five-year-old to go through when he's playing a joke um, <laughs> yeah. right. if he would know with substantial certainty that after the chair was moved that she would attempt to sit in the chair's original position and of course he did and he did know that much. yes yeah. the absence of an intent to injure or play mm-hmm. a joke is not sufficient to absolve him of liability it is sufficient for the plaintiff to prove only that the accused had sufficient knowledge to foresee the contact with substantial with substantial certainty and another fun thing to point out about this is that this is considered a battery, even though when we think of batteries, we think of active contact. We think of... Su- Actively hitting someone, yeah. Yeah. This is like 
removing an object and like technically like removing contact, but it's still considered a battery because it results in a different contact with the ground, which is an injury. No, and it was funny when I was bringing this case up earlier in our Teams chat online that both you and Laura very quickly knew what I knew because of oh, its yeah. popularity in law school. And I had never mm-hmm. I had never heard of this case because I guess I just assumed that a kid Brian Daly's age would essentially have some form of sovereign immunity. Because um, <laughs> <Yeah. but, laughs> he's a king. <laughs> I would rather Brian Daly have sovereign immunity than... than than, oh, than many, than, than certain, certain several government officials. <laughs> um, no, Brian Daly is a little, little, little ne'er do well, I must say. And speaking of ne'er do wells, we got one last case for you where it actually they get away with it. They they win. So basically, twenty years ago, and this is a case called Klein v. National Railroad Passenger Corp. About twenty years ago, two minor boys, I think they were like seventeen, uh, in Pennsylvania, were living their best summer in in a true Don Henley moment. All right, I'll have to I'll have to stop you there. That's one of the few songs from the 80s that's overplayed on the radio that that oh I do gosh. not change the station when it Really? Comes on. Yeah, cuz every summer that mm-hmm. song comes on on repeat and I I do have to change the channel. I and I actually like the Eagles <laughs> like but but not that one. No. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, continue. <laughs> anyway, yeah, sorry to derail my train story. Um, all I am trying to say is that these two kids were having a fun summer, like we all have done, right? They decided it would be really fun to climb on top of a freight car with a ladder attached to it while it was parked for the weekend. And, like, you know, which of us haven't done something like that in our youth, right? <laughs> Even as a grown-ass adult, I regularly go play on playgrounds or tennis courts where I'm not actually totally sure I'm allowed um, yeah. because asking forgiveness and not permission is my motto. And apparently theirs too. So uh, except unfortunately in their case, there was uh, an energized catenary wire that ran along the track and above the cars and it was emanating electricity and these guys got severely burned. Um The car was owned by Norfolk Southern and parked on a track owned by Amtrak. And the boys sued and went to trial for what was essentially an uncomplicated premise liability case against Amtrak. One of the main theories here involved the duty of a landowner to a trespasser. And I know this this is, again, going to take Joe and I all the way back to torts class uh, 1L of law school. Um, when I learned that a tort was not a cake to my disappointment. <laughs> no E, right? So <laughs> no E. For those that are like me and have no idea what a tort is, um, a tort is basically a civil wrong that's not related to breach of contract. So tort lawsuits seek civil remedies, typically monetary damages or sometimes injunctions. And sometimes this can overlap with criminal law. So uh, as Andy alluded to Mm -hmm. earlier, like if someone beats you up, you can press charges with the police or the police might independently arrest them. But you can either alternatively or additionally also press civil charges against them um, in a tort suit. And so anyway, most tort law is determined state by state and under a lot of state law, including here, Pennsylvania law, property owners like Amtrak here have some kind of duty of care, uh, some kind of obligation to 
certain people that come onto their property. And a landowner's duty of care to someone coming onto their land depends upon whether that person is legally considered, ready, Joe, a trespasser, a licensee, or an invitee. Oh, yeah. Ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. An invitee is someone that the owner of the property, like, induces to come onto their land through either an explicit invitation or implied somehow. So like this is a broad category. It would include friends that you invite to your house, customers that you have at your restaurant or store, um, attendees of a movie or a sporting event, and even like residents of an apartment complex. And the general rule is that the owner of the property is liable to invitees if they were injured by something that the owner either knew or should have known about in exercising reasonable care to inspect the property and keep it safe. There's like this active duty that you, you have to like keep your property safe for invitees. Um, and then there's exceptions, like if either the invitees like knew about the hazard before going into it and injured himself, like then he can't sue or if the hazard would, or if the hazard is what's called open and obvious, like a huge hole in a parking lot, plainly visible in broad daylight then you can't recover because then the theory is that, well, the invitee himself was negligent and failed to exercise ordinary care for his own safety. Generally, invitees are owed the highest legal duty by the property owner and therefore have the best chance at winning suits against them. There's like this higher duty owed because the theory is that the the, the property owner theoretically derives some benefit from having the invitee on his premises, whether you know, a customer buys your things or a tenant pays rent or a friend gives you their companionship. Um, so on the other hand, though, a licensee is someone who is allowed to be on the premises for his own benefit and not to the benefit of the property owner. So this excludes customers, which would be invitees. Um, it also excludes like household help, such as your gardener or your cleaning lady that you pay um, because you're also benefiting there um, in addition to them. It's someone who doesn't stand in any sort of contractual relationship with the property owner. Uh, they're only going in for their own interests, but they're permitted to be there, so they're also not trespassers. So examples of these are a little bit harder. Examples would be when like a friend stops by unannounced and comes in, and you let them in, but like you didn't invite them. Or I remember when we used to have a really crappy pond in the back of our house, uh, we had some we had some quote unquote lakefront property. It was it was not real. Uh, but someone we <laughs> use aunt wanted to come fish on our land, and we were like, okay, like we let them. Um, so that would be an example, uh, or like a utility company for the city who like comes up and digs your yard to work on like a county water main, right? The general rule here is that the landowner is liable to some extent for an injured licensee, only if like the owner has knows or has reason to know of a hazard and should expect that the licensee wouldn't discover or realize the danger and fails to exercise reasonable care to make the conditions safe or to warn the licensee. But it's like a lower bar um, and, and it's harder for the licensee to recover for injuries than an invitee because, again, the theory being since the property owner gains no benefit from a licensee's use of the property, they shouldn't be put to as great of a standard or burden to protect licensees as they would an invitee. Now, this third, the third category, trespassers, are easier to define, but what a lot of people might not realize is that you as landowner still might owe them some duty of care. 
Um, a trespasser is, of course, someone with no permission or legal right to be on the premise. Obvious examples are plenty, like a burglar or someone hunting on your land without permission or, of course, the boys in this Amtrak case. Now, to be fair, the general rule is that property owner is not liable to a trespasser who gets injured while there, but there are exceptions. And um, the exceptions are like that the property owner can still, for example, be liable if, well, if he if he kills or seriously injures the <laughs> trespasser himself. Um, and this is not the same as the castle doctrine or self-defense. Well, in all of these, like, if you look up, like, nuts, insane lawsuits mm-hmm. and stuff that's one of the uh, one that's always used too is somebody's trying to break into someone's house they they get hurt and then they sue and w- and they sue and win <laughs> but yeah so even if okay we're, we're putting aside self-defense because no one's like self-defense only works if like someone's coming at you and, and it's more complicated than that right this is just someone on your property you can't just shoot them and kill them but even if you don't take such drastic actions let's say you set like a booby trap for trespassers <laughs> and they get hurt. They can sue you um, because you're not allowed to do that. Note to self: <laughs> remove bear trap from yard. Yeah, yeah. That that is a a real case too that you talk about in law school. There was somebody who set up a booby trap with a mm-hmm. shotgun so that when you open the yep. door, the shotgun went off. And uh, oh my that, god, that was yeah, that was not cool. For that sure, was not cool. So that he got in trouble for that. <laughs> yeah. To bring it back to Macaulay Culkin, don't try home alone. Right. Yeah. Because you can be sued for it if someone gets hurt. But in this case, it was different because, okay, so the judge in the Amtrak case established that the plaintiffs, the boys, were trespassers on land owned by Amtrak. Um, But nonetheless, like, even though Amtrak wasn't setting booby traps, the the duty that Amtrak owed to them, even as trespassers, is to refrain from, quote, willful or wanton Misconduct, And here the plaintiffs argued that Amtrak's conduct was wanton. Wanton misconduct occurs when, like, an actor has either intentionally done an act of unreasonable character um, in disregard of a risk known or so obvious that he had to have been aware of it, and so great as to make it highly probable that harm would follow. So often this is accompanied by like a conscious indifference to consequences, not necessarily a desire to bring about harm, which is the case here. So running a train at a train yard is mm-hmm. <laughs> wanton indifference or whatever. Well, it was parked, right? But here, so the judge opines that the presence of high voltage lines above a parked railroad car and the phenomenon of arcing electricity are not well known to the public. These dangers are far from obvious. And I Amtrak guess so. itself, well, the judge said that Amtrak itself provided best evidence of this uh, danger because. Amtrak regularly educates, re-educates um, experienced employees that they have about the dangers of catenary wires. So they're like, if the dangers were so obvious, why would you know there need to if if they were so obvious to the, the to these boys, why would there need to be um, ongoing training to experienced employees about them? Mm-hmm. And jurors, jurors kind of agree. The jurors determined that uh, Norfolk Southern and Amtrak could have prevented the accident by just placing warning signs alerting people to the electrified catenary wire which power the trains. And since they didn't even do that much, they were wanton and and fell short of the very, very, very low duty that they owed a trespasser. Well, and uh, unlike uh, other cases that we've talked about, this one 
you could actually learn a thing or two from if you're a property <laughs> owner. Um, you know, like well, don't like, no, hey, 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 don't destroy somebody else's porno collection if they leave it at your house. Very true. Okay, so this is the second learning that we can take from mm-hmm. today's episode. Mm-hmm. But you know, things like if you have a pool, there's a thing called an attractive nuisance, and um, you know, yep. we don't need to get into that. But if you're if you're a property owner and you're worried about that kind of thing, we do have a lot of articles about that on Fine Law. You can check out. Um, just kind of know what your duty is, even if you don't invite those neighborhood rascally kids that pull out chairs from you know <laughs> from out from under people uh, you still sometimes have a duty to those kids and even if you are a kid mm-hmm. you might still need to watch your shenanigans mm-hmm. and that's all we have for today thank you so much for joining us on this episode of find laws don't judge me Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. 